If you've ever gone looking for a new church, and maybe there are some people doing that here today with us, you know that's not an easy task. Finding a church is a difficult thing to do. During this past month, last month during Advent and Christmas, I got to reconnect with some former church members who've moved away and have had to look for other churches, and they were just telling me what a difficult task that's been for them. Um, how it's just been hard to find a church as good as First Baptist Thompson. That's what they said. That made me feel pretty good. It's a challenging thing. I've talked to college students over the years. You know, they go off to college, and it's just so hard to find the right church to, to connect with, even if it's just temporarily while they're away at school. It's hard to examine and evaluate a church. You have to think about its vision, its values. You have to get to know the people and discover what their priorities are. Every church has a different personality. And then you're trying to, to weigh their ministries and their programs and all of that. And a church can look really good on the outside. Maybe it's big and flashy, and you like that sort of thing. Maybe it's a small, simple, family-style church. Maybe that's more your speed. But then once you get to know the people, you get to know their personality and their priorities, you might discover that things are a little different on the inside. Now, when you think about it, really the only one that can accurately truthfully evaluate a church as the head of the church, Jesus Christ, right? And He's really the only one who can expect a ch- inspect a church and know its true condition because He can see right into the heart of a congregation. In these letters that Jesus has written to the seven churches in Asia Minor, that's exactly what He's doing. He's inspecting the condition of these churches and then telling them what they need to do about it. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And when a church plateaus or, you know, it's kind of stagnates or even when a church begins to fall into decline, it seldom happens suddenly. Usually it happens incrementally. And sometimes the people in that church don't even realize that it's happening. They just start to drift a little off center. The church can be busy. It can look successful on the outside, but inside the people have become careless neglecting what really matters. Like Ben said, that's their first love, their love for Jesus. So as we begin to study these seven letters, I want to point out first the unique outline that almost each one of these letters follow. A couple of them might leave one out, but uh, look at this outline right here. Every letter we're going to look at in the coming weeks, you're going to first see the characteristics of Christ, the sender. Jesus sort of identifies himself first. And then he begins to compliment the recipients. And then he gives a criticism to the recipients. And then he gives them a command or a correction for them to follow to fix what he's criticized. And then finally he ends each letter with a commitment to everyone who listens to what he has to say and overcomes. So we're going to see this outline today as we look at Revelation chapter 2. Let's begin by reading that together. You'll follow along in your copies of the Scripture. To the angel, meaning the pastor of the church in Ephesus, write. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. And we talked about that last week. The seven stars are the pastors of these seven churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate 
wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the reading of Your Word. We thank You for the truth that it is and that Your Spirit communicates to us from it. And we pray, O Lord, You would give us the ears to hear what You would have to say to us today. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, the first thing we see right up there in verse 1 is the characteristic of the sender of Jesus. And that is that Christ is in control. Christ is in control. Now, the church of Ephesus had a history of stellar leadership. They were founded, they kind of began as a home Bible study in the house of Aquila and Priscilla. Two people that we read about often in the book of Acts, friends of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul came and sort of helped to get that started into a church. He spent a lot of time at Ephesus. They were pastored by Timothy. And then they were later pastored by the author of Revelation itself, the Apostle John. So they had an A-list of pastors, didn't they? I mean, they, they really had quite a stellar leadership history. But rather than just be thankful for the giftedness of these men and for their service, the church became prideful of who their past pastors had been. You know, we think that celebrity culture is kind of unique to the 21st century. It's not. The church at Ephesus kind of struggled with this sort of celebrity mindset. They placed way too much trust in their leaders and not enough in their Lord. And so Jesus begins the letter by reminding him them that the churches and the pastors belong to Him. He has authority over them. He can give them whatever pastor they want, and when He's ready, He can move that pastor someplace else and give them another pastor. Their trust, their confidence, their pride should be in Jesus not their leaders, past or present. Now, the lesson for us today is that, and this is a truth, this is an axiom, the, the, the past spiritual health, the past ministry success, our past numerical growth are not guarantees of future health success or growth. Do you agree with that? Tom Rainer says that one of the characteristics of spiritually unhealthy or dying churches is that they idolize the past. Members refuse to see the current reality. And they cling to the past, sometimes out of desperation and fear or maybe out of pride. And they expend lots of energy and resources fighting to keep things the way they used to be because they liked things the way they used to be. But those past heroes of the faith, here's the irony of it, the sad irony of it. Those past heroes of the faith made their sacrifices and worked hard because they believed that the future 
held the best days for the church, not the past. And so we actually dishonor their sacrifice and their hard work when we keep wanting to return to yesterday instead of work for what's to come tomorrow. Yes, we should respect the past. Honor and celebrate the past. Learn from the mistakes and successes of the past. But we cannot live in the past. I want you to consider this morning what it is about our church's past that you tend to put on a pedestal. Especially those of y'all that grew up here. Or that have been here, you know, 20 years or longer. What are the things about our church's past that you tend to idolize? Because we all do. Maybe it's a, a previous pastor or staff member. Maybe it's this sanctuary, or the chapel, or the parlor, or some other room in this building. Maybe it's the memories of some past program, ministry, or event that was meaningful to you. Are you just celebrating and remembering those things with gratitude, or are you idolizing them? We can celebrate these people, these buildings, these past successes. We can learn from them. We can honor them. But we must not idolize them. We need to remember that the one in control of this church is Jesus Christ. And our future health, growth, and success is found in Him. The second part of this letter is the compliments. We see those in verses 2 and 3, and then Jesus follows up with another one in verse 6. Kind of tags one on. Let's look at each of these compliments. The first, He compliments them for being a serving church. Jesus said that He knew their deeds. He knew the things that they were busy doing as a church. And listen, the Ephesian church was busy at ministry. Their church calendar was full. Their newsletter was packed with all kinds of events and programs and ministries. Their website, well, they didn't have websites back then, but if they did, their website had all these great opportunities on there. And they were well known in the community for their amazing outreach programs, their great basketball program, their ministries to those in need. They were a serving church. And then he says that they were a sacrificing church. Jesus said he knew their hard work. Now, the Greek word there means to toil to the point of exhaustion. They gave themselves fully to the work of the Lord. They weren't afraid to sacrifice their time, their energy, their efforts, their resources, to make sure that what they did was done with excellence. They were a sacrificing church. Third, they were a steadfast church. Jesus said that they had perseverance, which means they kept on going when the going got tough. Now, one of the things that made the going tough for the church in Ephesus was the culture in which they lived. Ephesus was an important cultural center in ancient Rome. In fact, they had two temples there. One was to the temple, uh, was a temple to the emperor Domitian. And they also held the temple of Artemis, which you might know is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. That was right there in Ephesus. The believers there faced enormous social and financial pressure to participate in these cultic, ritualistic worships of the emperor and the Greek and Roman gods. And the book of Acts tells us that Ephesus was a center of witchcraft and occultic practices. In other words, it was a very pagan place to live. So yes, it's commendable that this church was steadfast. They held their ground. They stood firm for what they believed in. And they didn't cave and they didn't compromise. And, and part of that was that they were a studious church. 
They had to study the Word of God so that they could test all these visiting preachers, all these people that were coming through trying to teach them and say things to them, claiming to be apostles. And, and the Ephesians found a lot of them were lying. They were false. They knew the Word of God. They knew the Scriptures. And they knew how to, to test whether somebody was speaking the truth or not. The book of Second John was actually written to the church in Ephesus. And in that letter, John encouraged them. He said, watch out for deceivers that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. And that's exactly what the believers in Ephesus did. They stood firm against false doctrine, especially against this group Jesus mentions called the Nicolaitans. Uh, and Jesus, we'll hear about them later in another letter Jesus writes. So this group of people, they claimed to be Christians. These Nicolaitans claimed to be Christians, but they took advantage. They abused the grace of God. They wanted to redefine Christianity to allow Christians to fit in more with the surrounding culture. They said that it was okay. It was a very permissive uh, perspective. It's okay for believers to sacrifice to idols. It's okay to practice sexual immorality. You've got to be tolerant. You've got to go along with the culture to get along. Sound familiar? These people's works weren't from faith in Christ. They just wanted to indulge sin. But thankfully, the Ephesians didn't tolerate their hypocrisy. And finally, Jesus says the church in Ephesus was a suffering church. You see, because they were steadfast and studious, because they held their ground, they were, they, because they patiently endured, they were persecuted for the, for the sake of Christ's name. But they never backed up. They never gave up. Now, if we stopped right here, stopped the sermon right here, you'd think, man, that church is nearly perfect. I mean, wow. I mean, we think there's a lot in that church for us to, to emulate and to learn from. It's like, man, we need to be those. I could preach a sermon right here about how we need to be like the church in Ephesus. You know, if, you know, if their pastor, if this was today, their pastor would be going around speaking at conferences, telling other churches how other churches can be like them. He'd be writing books and blogs. He'd, he'd be in, on, on podcasts. But Jesus follows up all these compliments with one hard-hitting, brutally honest criticism. And here's the criticism. They left their first love. They left their first love. This church was busy doing good things. They were growing. They were sacrificing for the cause of Christ. They were suffering for Jesus' name's sake. They were maintaining doctrinal integrity in the face of enormous cultural pressure. But while they looked healthy and successful on the outside, on the inside, they had a heart problem. They forgot to love their Lord. Jesus said He held this against them. They had forsaken their first love. Now that word forsaken is a strong word. The Greek word translated forsaken is used throughout the New Testament most often to be the word forgive. It's the same word. When you read the word forgive in the New Testament, it's the same Greek word. Because this Greek word means to cancel, let go, or send away. So when we're forgiven, our debt is canceled. We're, we're let go. We're released from our guilt and our shame. Our, our sins are sent away from us. So that's why this word means forgiven. But it's also the same Greek word 
used for divorce. So what Jesus is saying here, when He says that they have forsaken Him, they're saying they divorced Him. They left their first love. They walked out on Jesus. This is more than just love growing cold, routine, or stale. They literally walked away from Jesus, their first love. And I think it's because they became so in love with someone else themselves. It's hard to imagine that we can serve and sacrifice and even suffer for Jesus' name without really loving Jesus. Isn't that amazing? But the Ephesian church did that. They left their first love for their second love. They left Jesus for themselves. They took their eyes off the head, off Christ, and they became increasingly enamored with themselves. They started to believe their own press. They loved their history. They loved their leadership. They loved their successful programs and ministries. They loved their reputation for standing up for the truth. It was a rush for them. But they weren't doing any of it out of love for Christ. They loved talking correctly about God, but not so much talking to God. They loved being morally and theologically right, but they were spiritually wrong. They honored Jesus with their lips, but their hearts were far from Him. You might say it this way. They loved the Lord their God with all their mind and strength, but not with all their heart and soul. And that's our New Testament reading in 1 Corinthians 13 reminds us, without love, we can't say anything of consequence. Without love, we can't accomplish anything lasting. Without love, we are nothing. We gain nothing. So let's allow Jesus to examine our hearts this morning. What is our church's motivation for what we do? Because in a lot of ways, man, I think we look like that church in Ephesus. We're a serving church, busy. We're a sacrificing church, a giving church. We're a church that's steadfast and studious. We may not suffer so much in, in, in our country. Thank the Lord we don't have to do that. But why do we do all these things that we do? Why do you do them? Why are you here this morning? Why do you volunteer and serve? Why do you give? Is it out of love for Christ and His kingdom that we do these things? Or is it out of love for ourselves? Do we maybe love the recognition a little bit? I have to tell you, it's kind of nice when I count those cars coming through the drive through nativity. I think, man, look at all these thousands of people coming to see what we're doing. It's hard not to get a little prideful, isn't it? Do we love the satisfaction? Sometimes we do these things because it makes us feel good, doesn't it? Are we driven by obligation? Or do we do it out of devotion to Jesus Christ? Out of love for Him? One way, real quick, you can answer this question for yourself is to ask yourself, what am I not willing to do? What am I just not willing at all to change or to give up even if it means following the will of God? Even if it means glorifying the name of Christ and making more disciples. I'm not talking about anything unbiblical or illegal or unethical, of course. But within the will of God, within biblical bounds, if there's anything that you are just unwilling to change on, maybe, just maybe, you love that a little more than you love Jesus. In his letter to the Ephesian church, Paul talks about love over 20 times. 
He admonishes them to be rooted and established in love. He prays that they would grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, He encourages them to walk in the way of Christ's love. He even uses the analogy of a husband's love for his wife to illustrate Christ's love for His church. Yet in Ephesus, the bride of Christ has divorced Him. Despite His love for them, they have forsaken their love for Him. And all the good things that they are doing and saying, it's all just noise. It's a clanging gong. It's a symbol. It's vanity. It means nothing. It accomplishes nothing. So what are they to do about it? How can they correct their hearts? How can they rekindle their love for Christ? Jesus gives them three corrections. Three corrections to rekindle their love. And the first one is remember. Now, the emphasis of the verb here is to keep on remembering. Remember and keep on remembering. Don't forget. Continually remind yourselves. Throughout the Bible, God is always telling His people to remember. Remember the things that He has done for them. See, when we reflect on God's faithfulness in our lives, it can't help but strengthen our love for Him. As I said earlier, it's good, it's healthy to remember our past, to reflect on where we've been and what we've seen God do in and through us. And there is much to celebrate in the history of First Baptist Thompson. Amen? God is good. And we also need to do that individually. As Ben was saying this morning, think back in your own life to when you gave your heart to Jesus. Think back to when you passed through a baptistry, maybe this one, maybe another one, to, to, to publicly symbolize your dedication of your life to Jesus Christ. Consider those times when you felt closer to God than you do today. Maybe it was a revival service. Maybe it was a special worship experience. Maybe it was a mission trip or a youth camp. Maybe it was a, a time that you shared the gospel with someone and led someone to faith in Christ. Maybe it's just a, a personal time, one-on-one you had with God at the beach or, or in the mountains. Think about those moments. When we look back and remember how our relationship with God used to be, it can whet our appetite for a deeper walk with Him today. Because we're going to want to recapture our lost passion for Christ. We want to recapture that, that burden we used to have for the lost, that, that vision for our church. I couldn't help but when looking back in some of my doctoral research, looked at the past statistics of our, of our church, I couldn't help but notice a sizable uptick in giving, attendance, and new members during and immediately after our church's 150th anniversary. And I thought, well, why is that? It's the power of remembering. It's the power of celebrating God's past goodness and faithfulness. But you know what? We don't have to wait for another 50 years to come by to do that, do we? We need to do that every day in our hearts and minds. Remember and give God the praise. The second step is then to repent. This word means literally to change your mind. When we repent of sin, it's first because we've been confronted by God, isn't it? He's convicted us. He's confronted us with something we've done wrong or something right that we're failing to do. And then we remember God's, you know, and when we remember God's past deeds, that is one way that He convicts us. When you remember the good things God has done, when you remember what your relationship with Jesus used to be like, it often convicts you because you're not there today. Listen, you're either growing closer to the Lord or you're slipping away. There is no staying the same. And so when we reflect on the past, when we remember, we're often convicted. And then we have to agree with God 
about our sin. That's called confession. And then finally we repent. We change our mind, our attitude, and our actions to align with what God says. We turn away from what we're doing wrong and we turn back to Christ so that we can follow Him. Have you ever discovered, Matt, that you're going the wrong way? Maybe you're going down the road, you're driving the wrong way? He's never done that. Shelly, is that true? <laughs> Shouldn't lie in church, Matt. You know, I've done that before. When I was in college, I was heading home one Friday afternoon, and I got off to, to get some gas and got back on the interstate, and all of a sudden, you know, Nashville, you know, is west of, of Maryville in East Tennessee, right? It's west of it. So I'm driving down the interstate, and I realize that the sign says uh, I-40 West. And I thought, oh, no, I'm, I'm going back to Nashville. And I had to get off at the next exit and turn around. That's repentance. Have you ever been so convinced that something was a certain way, but then somebody finally convinced you that you were wrong and you had to say, yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right, I, I was wrong, you're, you're right. You know, men, husbands, we have to do that often, don't we? That's called repentance. We change our mind as a church and as believers. We need to allow God's Spirit to convict us of our sins, our mistakes, our misplaced priorities. We need to be humble enough to confess our wrongs and to repent to change our minds so we can align with the will and way of God. Amen? What are some of the things we as a church need to repent of? And it may not be wrong things we're doing. It may be that we're failing to do the things God commands us to do. What about you personally? Again, our church is made up of us, of individuals, right? So, so if, if our church has lost its first love, it's because... We as individual believers have lost our first love. We determine the spiritual health and condition of our church. And then finally we have to return. See, part of repentance is actually to return to do what we know is good and true and right. To go back to the basics. To embrace what it is that God has commanded us. What the purpose of the church is. And what are some of the things God has commanded us to do that we sometimes get away from? Worshiping Him in spirit and truth. Praying daily. Spending time in His Word, reading and studying and meditating on it, memorizing it, and then living it out. Giving. Giving our tithes and offerings, but giving of ourselves and our resources to help others in need. Meeting people's needs in the name of Jesus. And making disciples by sharing the gospel with the lost, bringing them to faith in Christ, incorporating them into the life of our church, and then teaching them to live in the ways of Jesus. These are the essentials. And if we're not doing these things, then it doesn't matter what we do because we're not doing the things that God has commanded us to do. A big part of church revitalization is remembering our past. And your revitalization team has spent time doing just that. But then we repent. We work to change our minds about what really matters. We're in that process right now. But then we must return to the basics. To emphasize Jesus' priority over our personal preferences. We need to start to major on the majors, not the minors. And we do that as we refocus and realign our goals towards the biblical focus and goals for the church. But what if we don't repent? What if we don't repent and return to doing what God would have us to do? Well, Jesus gives a chilling warning. 
He tells the church in Ephesus that if they do not repent and return to their first love, Jesus will remove their lampstand from its place. Now, I mentioned last week that about every single week, around 250 churches in North America close their doors for good. Jesus removes their lampstand from their place. No matter how great our programs or how pure our doctrine, if we lose our love, we lose our light. Do we have the ears to hear what Jesus is saying to us this morning? Will we rekindle our love for Christ as a church, as individuals, by remembering and repenting and returning? If we will, listen to Christ's commitment to us. Look back at verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The commitment is life for those who overcome. Now, what does it mean to be one who overcomes? It doesn't mean you're a spiritual superhero. It doesn't mean you're perfect. This term is found repeatedly throughout Revelation. And Jesus promises throughout the book of Revelation all kinds of good things to those who overcome. But the key to being someone who overcomes is actually found in Revelation 12, 11. Jesus says, they overcame him, or, or John writes this, they overcame him, meaning Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. So how do we overcome? We overcome by the shed blood of Christ and by the testimony of the gospel. In other words, I don't overcome by, by my own strength, by my own wisdom, by my own cleverness. I overcome by relying on Christ's redemptive victory and by remaining loyal to Him even in the face of suffering. In other words, we overcome by returning to and staying close to our first love. And look what Jesus promises to do here if we do. He says we'll have the right to eat from the tree of life. Now you remember the tree of life was in the Garden of Eden. But Adam and Eve, instead of enjoying it for all of eternity, they rejected it to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They rejected the love and life of God so that they could love themselves and determine for themselves what is right and wrong. They left the first love for themselves, just as the church in Ephesus. But through Jesus Christ, we can have abundant life today. And someday we'll stand in the presence of God and we can eat from that tree of eternal life and live with Him forever. Ephesus was a careless church at a crossroads. If they returned to their first love for Jesus, their doors would remain open, their light would shine brightly. But if they continued working without a supreme love for Jesus, their doors would close and their light would go out. First Baptist Thompson, if we love our ministries, programs, staff, theology, and buildings more than we love Jesus, We've lost our first love and we need to repent and return to the basics of what it means to be the church of Christ here and now on this corner in Thompson, Georgia. Will we repent and return? Will we overcome by trusting and loving the one who overcame for us? Will you? Jesus overcame. He overcame sin and death for you. 
But you've got to put your faith and trust in Him. Maybe this morning there's someone here who's never done that. You've never trusted your life to Christ. You've never experienced that forgiveness of sin that comes from knowing Jesus. You can't return to your first love because you've never known Him. Would you come today and know the love of Jesus Christ for the first time? Maybe this morning you're worshiping here and you know that God has led you to this church. You've been worshiping with us for a time and you know this is where God would have you to join, to, to, to be rooted and established in the love of Christ. We invite you to come for church membership this morning. But maybe for you, you just need to come and kneel at this altar and pour your heart out to God and ask Him to forgive you and welcome you back as the Father welcomed back that prodigal son because you've left your first love. Would you pray? Father, You are a God of grace and mercy. You're always standing with arms open wide, ready to receive us. Lord, we can be so busy doing good things for You that we forget to be with You. We forget to adore You. We forget to simply be Your children in Your presence and to love You. And we get so confused about what really matters. Forgive us. Forgive us as a church. Forgive me. And I pray, Father, Your Spirit move and work in our hearts and minds today as people come to respond. But beyond that, even as we go out of these doors, as we go into the rest of our week, as we come back time and again to serve and to learn and to worship, help us to love You supremely. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.